Father, we pray that the words that we sing would be reflective of the spirituality of our hearts, the reality of what we hold precious, what we believe, what we pursue with our lives, though faltering, though failing, though struggling, though wrestling, not only with our own flesh, but with principalities and powers of the air, spiritual forces of darkness that are set against us. We have, O Lord, our own flesh, we have the world, and we have the devil, all competing for our failure, and yet we have something greater than all of the amassed power of our enemy, we have the Holy Spirit. And greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And so, it is by your Spirit that we ask that you would open our ears to hear your word, that we would be strengthened and instructed and encouraged and taught by it, that we would indeed hear your voice, not the words of men, but the words of our God and our Savior, our risen Lord, who speaks now from heaven through your written word. We commit this time to you. We ask you to accomplish your work in us for your glory, for our joy. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're going to look this morning at the issue of contentment. I know you're probably tired of me saying this each week, but uh, we will eventually get to a book and kind of settle there for a while. We're kind of flipping around on different topics. Uh, Today is contentment, and it is fully my intention, believe it or not, to finally get to uh, social media and the internet and uh, the Christian perspective of those and how we are to interact with that next week, which I hope to do, uh, be able to finish in two or three messages. Uh, I promise. I know I started this whole thing saying we'd get there, but uh, it's taken me a while, but I am going to intend to get there next week. But this morning I want to look briefly before we come to the Lord's table together at the idea of contentment, of Christian contentment. Contentment is something that is a precious virtue, it is a precious fruit of our faith in Christ, and yet it is something that's often missing from the church. And particularly that it's something that's missing, missing in the Western church because we live in a culture of such opulence, of such abundance, of such ease and such excess. And the, the trickery of sin, the deceit of sin, is that all of those things hold out the promise of contentment. If we only had a little bit more, if our lives were just a little bit easier, if we only had a more abundance, then we would be more content. But, and so the world pursues those things to that end for happiness and contentment. But in fact, those things are the very destroyers of contentment when they're not kept in the right priority. The more we have, the more we expect, the more we expect, the more we want, and the more we have, the more dependent we become on the things that we have. And all of that is opposed to the gospel of Christ and a humble trust in the Lord. Indeed, all of those are opposed then to the reality of true Christian contentment. So the issue of contentment is really a deeply spiritual issue. It's a marker of our spiritual lives. And again, it's also one of the great fruits, as I said earlier, of spiritual humility and maturity. And it's a precious fruit indeed. An old Puritan writer wrote a well-known work. His name was Jeremiah Jeremiah Burroughs. It was called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Even then, noting that It was something rare among Christians to have this precious fruit of contentment, of peace of soul, as a governing reality of our lives, of our spiritual lives. Another old Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson 
who lived in the 1600s, so the 17th century, he wrote a work called The Art of Divine Contentment. And he says this, after calling contentment a beautiful queen, he says, for my part, I do not know of any ornament in religion that more bespangles a Christian or glitters in the eye of God and more than this of contentment. Nor certainly is there anything wherein all the Christian virtues work more harmoniously or shine more transparently than in this orb. Every grace acts its part here. In other words, every, every true grace produced by the Spirit of God finds or comes from or is found in a heart that is content. That is content. Later, speaking of the sin of discontent, Watson goes on to say this, O Christian, if you are overspread with this fretting leprosy, that is discontent, you carry the man of sin about you, for you set yourself above God and act as if you were wiser than he and would sassily, don't you love that word? And sassily prescribe to him what condition is best for you. Oh, this devil of discontent, which wherever it possesses a person makes his heart a little hell. And he follows that with a little encouragement, noting this. And I know there will never be perfect contentment in this life. Perfect pleasure is only at God's right hand. Yet we may begin here to tune our instrument before we play the sweet lesson of contentment exactly in heaven. And so it's really with this desire that expressed in that last line to tune our instrument to tune our instrument before we play the sweet lesson of contentment exactly in heaven, that we're going to look at that topic this morning, and particularly, or specifically, we'll look at it in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, and particularly Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. You can go ahead and turn there if you're not there yet. And in 4.11, Paul says these well-known words, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. This is one of the most well-known texts on contentment uh, in all of Scripture. And in fact, again, if I could borrow from Watson, he says this of this verse. This is a speech worthy to be, be engraved upon our hearts and to be written in letters of gold upon the crowns and diadems of princes. It is indeed a, a precious truth, a, a precious verse, and one that we do well to meditate on and take a little time to consider this morning. But I want to note first here, just by way of contrast, and we'll read the, we'll read the, the fuller passage here in just a bit, that there is a wrong kind of contentment. There is a wrong kind of contentment. And the wrong kind of contentment comes from, and again, I'm pulling out here of what it is where we wrongly pursue, but there is a wrong kind of contentment that comes from ease or a lack of trouble, uh, an abundance or confidence in one's own strength. There's, there's a kind of wrong kind of contentment, not that it's necessarily in of itself sinful, but it's not the Christian contentment that Paul's talking here. If we're at peace internally and at peace with those around us, simply because or based in or grounded on the fact that we have peace in our lives. In other words, a, a lack of trouble, a lack of need, a lack of want. And so we say then that we are content. But as we all know, that kind of contentment can be destroyed in a moment because it's built on false premises. That's not the kind of contentment that Paul is speaking of here. 
Spiritual contentment is that which is unshakable. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And here is a key. It is detached from circumstances. It is detached from circumstances. It's rather grounded in trust in and fellowship with the Lord. It flows from the Spirit through the Lord to one who is trusting Him and obedient to Him and living in fellowship with Him. In fact, the very context of Philippians provides for us a strong commendation of that fact. Uh, You remember maybe the context of Philippians. I'll just remind you briefly that Paul is writing from a Roman prison. He says that in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. He says, "So, so that in my imprisonment. Now, Paul was in prison at various times throughout his life. Sometimes it was in more severe conditions, sometimes in less severe conditions. But here he is in a Roman prison. Very likely some hold that it was a maritime prison, which is one in which it was really, you can, you can see it, it was like a large hole in the ground and they were just kept down there. It was dirty, damp, dark, stinky, and all of the things that would go with that. Very likely he may have been in that kind of prison. But nonetheless, he's riding in bonds, he's riding in chains, he's riding in circumstances that, humanly speaking, would not be conducive or encouraging towards contentment and joy. And not only is he writing from adverse external physical circumstances, but he's writing the book of Philippians in the context of those who are seeking to malign him in his ministry. He mentions those in chapter 1. Those are, who are preaching against Paul, who are seeking to undermine his character. That was something common in his life. Those who were preaching the gospel out of envy and jealousy of Paul and so seeking to magnify their ministries above his own. Not only did he have that from those who were professing Christ, he also had false teachers who were constantly a threat to the church, constantly a threat to undermine the gospel that he was preaching, a threat to the spiritual reality and lives of those whom he loved so much. You remember that he said in Corinthians that his greatest sorrow was his concern for the churches that they might be led into sin. And so it's not that his life was just simply free from trouble. It's not that everything was rosy and hunky-dory for him. He, in fact, was in very adverse circumstances, both physically, both in terms of relationships and those things that were working against him in terms of his ministry. And yet, in light of that, Philippians is a book that more than most others in the New Testament sets forth the joy of the Apostle Paul. The joy of the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, the terms that are translated joy, both the verbs and the noun, are used more in in Philippians, or is used only in one other place more than Philippians, that is in the Gospel of Luke. But out of all of the other epistles and all of the other Gospels, there is a concentration of this idea of joy, and there is one of the great statements of the New Testament on the reality of contentment. Again, it is... A contentment, it is a spiritual contentment, a Christian contentment that Paul speaks of here that is utterly separated from the circumstances that he's in. Now before we we go into some of the keys of contentment uh, that I'll mention here in just a bit, let me read the the surrounding context of that verse. We'll begin in verse 10 and then I'll I'll actually read down to verse 19, although we're going to mostly focus on verse 11 and, and really just be bouncing around through the epistle itself. But let me read Philippians 4, verse 10 through 19, to give us a little wider context. Paul says this in verse 10. 
But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. There then is a beautiful picture of, of a man, of a faithful servant of Christ, who lived in an unshakable condition of contentment in his service to Christ. Now, let me just briefly mention this word content uh, before we get in uh, a little deeper here. Uh, what, is, what is the idea of contentment that he speaks of, of here? Well, this word, interestingly, in this exact form is only used here in the New Testament. There's another form I'll mention in a bit that's used a few other times. But it is used also in the Old Testament, actually in the Septuagint, if you'll remember, that's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the translators use this same term uh, to translate Proverbs 38. Let me read that for you. In In the Septuagint, it reads like this. Remove far from me vanity and falsehood, and give me not wealth or poverty, but appoint me what is needful and sufficient. In in our Bibles, or at least in the New American Standard, that verse, Proverbs 38, Eight is translated like this. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither riches, but feed me with the food that is my portion. In other words, what the Old Testament uh, in Proverbs 38 is referring to is saying, don't, don't give me too much that I become greedy. Don't give me too little that I steal. Give me only what is my own, what is coming to me according to your providence, and I will be content. I will be content. The same idea is picked up in 1 Timothy 6. I'm just going to mention this just to give you an idea of it. He says in 1 Timothy 6 this, and this is where he uses the other form of the word. He says this in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. We shall be content. In other words, don't desire more than what God has supplied as if the more or the abundance would be a greater instrument for our contentment. Why could he say that again? Because our contentment is not found in things or in circumstances. One other verse, just quickly. He says here in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 8, he says, he says, I am not speaking, or excuse me, he says, uh, Well, actually, I wrote down the wrong verse. That doesn't matter. But he was content in 1 Corinthians 9, even as he was content in the book of Philippians. 
So he's speaking, though, in both of these cases is that he has in his ministry and in his life what he needs to serve the Lord. And he is satisfied with that. But his satisfaction is not something that is just his own possession in terms of that he saw only his own interest in it. But rather, the satisfaction and the contentment that he experiences is the means or the foundation out of which he serves Christ and out of which he serves others. One has said this, enough means only sufficiency for oneself, but also what can be given to one's brothers. The Christian cannot consider contentment in isolation. Now again, this stands in contrast. We mentioned, we read this morning, uh, Paul mentioned the Stoics. The Stoics used this word, but they used it in the idea of self-sufficiency. In other words, to be self-sufficient and content in your own resources. But Paul turns that around here in the book of Philippians, as does the New Testament, and says this contentment comes not from self-sufficiency, but from being sufficient in Christ. Now let me pull all this together, and then we're going to get to four keys. Here's the idea of contentment. It is a state of internal peace and rest that results from trust in God's providence and provision as always adequate to fulfill His will in life and ministry. Now, I don't imagine you're going to try to write that down, but let me repeat it again. It is a state of internal peace and rest that results results from trusting God's providence and provision as always adequate to fulfill His will in life and ministry. It's a settled conscience. It's not, a, it's not a, a selfish condition that allows us to detach and be unconcerned about the world, but it's a settled condition of peace that rather allows us to serve others out of our trust in God. And, and in this way, it's actually attached to joy. It's actually attached to joy. As a matter of fact, let me just mention this to you. Uh, Jesus says this, in John chapter 15, which could be, he's going to mention joy here, but could also be uh, connected to the idea of contentment. He says, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. You have grief now, speaking of when he was going to depart from them through the crucifixion. He says, But I will see you again, speaking here of his resurrection and his return to them, alive from the dead. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. So again, this contentment, as with joy, is a possession of faith. His possession of faith. So he could say here to these Philippians that he speaks to them not from want, that he speaks to them from a place of contentment, whether he has or whether he lacks, whether he, that he can find joy not in their gift, but in the benefit accrued, that accrues to their account spiritually, because he did not speak of want. He was contented. He was contented in whatever position God had brought him in life. Now with that, let me mention four keys here. Four keys about how Paul, what was really behind this contentment that Paul experienced? How do we know this contentment? What are the principles that we apply to our own lives that help us learn what Paul learned? And by him saying that he learned it, it means that he wasn't just snapped with contentment. He didn't just pray and God poofed him with contentment one day. It is something that he learned and that he gained through exercising faith, through applying spiritual disciplines, through ordering his life in line with the will of God. So with that, then let me note four principles of spirituality evident in Paul's life that instruct us on how to gain 
and experience Christian contentment. And first is this. To have Christian contentment, it's necessary that we live with an eternal mindset. That we live with an eternal and not a temporal mindset. Now this is displayed throughout the book of Philippians, the life of Paul. But let me take you to one passage. And it's in chapter 3 of Philippians. Chapter 3. And here I'm just going to mention it and pull out this idea of an eternal mindset. We'll come back to it again later. But here Paul is talking about who he is in Christ. He's comparing what his life was outside of Christ and what his life is now inside or in Christ. What it was that he valued outside of Christ and what he values now being in relationship and fellowship with Christ. Again, it's a well-familiar passage, but he says in verse 7, Whatever things were gained to me, and by gain there he means all of those religious credentials that he had before as a Pharisee. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may be gained Christ, so that I may gain Christ. It may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And here's the key. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's what governed Paul's life. What governed his life was the attainment of that to which he had been called to. Namely and ultimately, to gain the prize, I think here is best understood as being with Christ in the future. In intimate fellowship with Christ that can never be broken. It's something that he had now, it's something that he entered into now... But it's something that he longed for and he ordered his life as directed towards that final end which he would be with Christ. Everything that he did was with an eye to the end. To the eye of what he would gain. To the eye of presenting his life before Christ Jesus on that day. An eye towards the resurrection. And this stands in direct contrast here then to these false teachers who he says in verse 19, end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and here's the key, who set their minds on earthly things. Who set their mind on earthly things. In contrast to that, Paul set his mind on heavenly things. Heavenly things. Now these aren't, again, religious and unreligious. He's speaking here of that inner drive, that thing which was most precious to them. What was precious to Paul was what he would have and gain in the future in Christ. What was precious to these false teachers 
was whatever they could gain from the world here and now. It's very similar to what Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 6, 2, who, who liked to pray so they could receive honor and recognition from others. He says, they have their reward in full. It's a reward you have here. It's a reward that's temporary. It's a reward that, reward that you have, but it's fading away. Paul says, I don't really care about any of that. What I care about is the reward that's promised to me at the end of a faithful life. At the end of a life that was faithful to Christ. And so he lived with a singular focus on the end of his life. The end of the promise of the gospel. And that was to be with Christ. And so he could say, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ was his prize. Christ was his prize. And so his life was focused towards the end goal of attaining being with Christ, the full experience of redemption. In other words, he had an eternal mindset that put his present circumstances and ministry into proper perspective. It's into proper perspective. And here's the principle. Our view of eternity, our view of the end, indeed our compelling preoccupation with eternity and what we've been called to is what shapes our attitude and perspective of the present. Everything here is temporary, but what we have gained in Christ is eternal. And so the mindset then that says, I have abandoned my love for the things of this world so that I could live for what cannot be taken away is a mindset that can live with the Christian virtue of contentment. Any circumstance, whether in abundance or want, is temporary in nature and not the truest expression of what we have in Christ. That's what's to come. So look at the end of that chapter. He says, after saying that their minds are set on earthly things, he says, but look, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That is a key to Christian contentment. Is living... In light of the fact that our home is not here, our home is in fact in heaven with Christ, that whatever our body experiences here in terms of abundance or in terms of want is only temporary, but the true end for which we've been redeemed and for which Christ was raised is that he might conform our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. In other words... The resurrection should shape our entire lives. Everything should be viewed in terms of the end. Nothing here is permanent, whether pain or pleasure. And so that changes the mindset, doesn't it? It changes the mindset. Instead of looking to this earth to be a fulfillment of our satisfaction, instead of looking to those things that we can gain in this world to be the the foundation of our joy and our contentment, we look to the future and we know that it's a joy that cannot be taken away. It's a joy that's promised to us. It's a contentment in knowing that whatever God brings into our life now, whether it be times of want, again, or times of lack, are simply instruments and tools preparing us for the final end to which we've been called. 
He shapes us. In fact, when God takes things away from us and he brings us into times of want, that actually is an instrument of God to help us set our minds more clearly on the future and what's been promised to us. Because we can be so easily distracted with the things of this world. When we have an eternal mindset, it lifts us out of present circumstances and frustrations and enables us to rest in spiritual contentment, to serve the Lord with joy as we await our heavenly reward. What does that mean practically? It means that the job that is difficult, living in the home you don't want, in the place you may not want to be, in circumstances that are difficult and trying, where you feel like there's just one disappointment and discouragement after another, Though these are real, though they come with a real pain, they're temporary. They're passing. In fact, they are trials and tools and instruments of God simply to make us long for and to set our affections on those things that are truly ours. And that is all that we have in Christ. They're to remind us that we are not yet what we shall be, that we do not have yet what is promised to us. And so we wait, and we can wait contentedly, knowing that our truest joy cannot be taken away. We can wait then on the Lord's provisions. We can wait contentedly in present fellowship with Him. We can wait without anxiety. We can wait, wait in trust. Again, Paul demonstrated that throughout his, out his life. And that only can come then, this kind of contentment can only come When we realize that this world is not our home, God never designed this world and the things that we could gain gain from it to be the source of contentment. A nicer house, a better job, a larger paycheck is not going to be the source of contentment. If those are the things that you seek it in, then you will be discontent and you will ultimately, we will dishonor the Lord. And never know the joy of what's promised to us. So the first key or the first principle of spiritual contentment is to live with an eternal mindset. Secondly is this, and I'm going to go more quickly through these. Second is this, being focused on others more than yourself. Being focused on others more than yourself. Of course, that was hallmark of Paul's life. He gave his life to the service of the church. In fact, he begins his letter expressing his joy for them, his joy in their faith, his joy in what God was doing in their life, his joy in those in whom God had begun a good work and would be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, he said of them for God in verse 8 of chapter 1, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loved them. He loved them deeply. He loved them tremendously. He lived his life focused on how he could serve them. And this is probably most clearly stated in chapter 1, there in verse 23. Now Paul has already talked about how his his life was in possibility of danger. He didn't think he would die, but he knew it was a possibility. He said there at the end of verse 20 that Christ would be exalted, whether his body by whether life or by death. Me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But then he says this, but if I'm to live off in the, in the flesh, he says, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul's looking at heaven. He's looking at this opportunity to be with Christ. He's saying that's very much better. And yet, here he is resting in complete contentment to remain. And why? Because if he remained, he knew it would be a benefit to the church at Philippi. He knew it would serve them. He knew it would be used for the blessing and the increase of their faith. As a matter of fact, he says this even more strongly. In chapter 2, verse 17, 18, he says this. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. In other words, here's the Apostle Paul imprisoned, being attacked by false teachers and even some within the church, having and knowing the reality of need and suffering, constantly his life in danger, and yet he's fully content. Why? Because the whole purpose of his life, the whole direction, the whole drive, the whole motivation was his service to the church. And so this is amazing. Look at what he says in verse 17 again. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. That means that though the sacrifice is all his, the cost is all his, he is the one suffering, he doesn't at all find any discontent in that. He doesn't find any cause for grumbling in that. He doesn't find any cause for a woe is me attitude or sadness because he was so overjoyed in the reality of the fruit of his sacrifice, namely the growth of the Philippians' faith. Do you catch that? He was so overjoyed at their growth in faith that he didn't even take notice of his own pain and suffering. He was so others focused. He was so focused on others. He was so compelled by what served and met the need of others and of the church. That was his sole purpose for being here. He wasn't going around and feeling sorry for himself because of all of the sacrifices he had made. He was so focused on what the end of those sacrifices was, which was the service of the church. So he was imprisoned. He was wrongly accused maligned by false teachers, even those who profess Christ, and yet he served with joy and gladly sacrificed his own life because it served the Philippians. In fact, he was forgetful of his own sacrifice because he was captured with the joy of the faith of the Philippians. He was content in his service for others because he gave little thought of what it cost him. It's amazing how a heart bent on serving others more than serving self supplies the reality of contentment. Of contentment. It's not unlike the Lord's words that he said in Acts 20, 35. He said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. If our minds are occupied with meeting the needs of others, then there's far less room to be anxious about our own disappointments, our own wants. And that indeed, this is the attitude that he said models that of Christ in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard... For the interest of others. That was in Christ. 
So here it is. Because Paul rested in God's sovereignty, because his joy was grounded in his fellowship with Christ, he thought of them as more important than himself. You can't come to church and you can't be with other people and be concerned about their needs and be concerned about serving them and at the same time grumble and complain and at the same time be discontent. It simply can't happen because serving others gets our minds off of ourselves and brings us to a place of contentment and service to the Lord. That's why Paul could say in 4.17 this. I'll repeat it. We read it earlier. He said he was rejoicing and he was thankful for the Philippians because of what they sent because it did meet their needs. They sent a gift, if you remember in Philippians, by Epaphroditus. He had received that. He was thankful for it. But he says this in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for your profit, which, or for the profit, which increases to your account. You get that? Even in the receiving of the gift, even in his needs being met, he wasn't overjoyed in the abundance that he had, that his needs were met. He was overjoyed that in giving the gift, the Philippians had spiritual blessing. That the Philippians were built up in their faith. That the Philippians' joy would increase because of their sacrifice, which was accepted to the Lord, he said earlier, or accepted by the Lord. In other words... He could, because he was in a place of contentment, because he did not speak out of a place of want, because he was so focused on the needs of others and not his own, he didn't, he didn't see, even in his gift, even in the provision of his needs, a reason for joy because of his needs being met, but rather because of the blessing that it brings to those who served him. Totally, totally selfless. Third, contentment then comes from an eternal mindset, thinking of others more than ourselves, and it comes from fully living under the lordship of Christ. And this really probably could be the only point we mentioned. But I'll mention it separately. You know this verse well. He says this in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, he says this after he's just noted that some are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment, he said in verse 17. He's being maligned even by those who profess the name of Christ. And yet he only looks at this fact, that Christ would be exalted in his body. And he says, the reason that's so is because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So his only concern then was that the gospel went forward. How could he be there? How could he get there? For me to live as Christ. Because Christ then was the foundation of his life. His joy, his service, and his contentment. He did not live, and here's the key, expecting to find his joy in the things of the world, but found it totally in Christ. When Paul came to know Christ, when he repented, as it is true of every believer, he exchanged his life for the life of Christ. This is really nothing more than the fruit of genuine repentance. That flows out of regeneration. Don't, don't turn there. Listen to Matthew 16. Jesus said, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. He says this in John chapter 12. Similar words. Let me turn there. John chapter 12, verse 25. 
He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. That's salvation. That's repentance. It's an exchange of our life for the life of Christ. And so Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. I don't live by my own agenda. I don't live by my own wants. I don't live by my own sense of needs or do uh, the honor that I'm due, my own pleasures. I live solely for the purpose of serving and knowing and loving and being faithful to Christ. One put it this way. For Paul, Christ had been the beginning of life, for on that day on the Damascus Road, it was as if he had begun life all over again. Thirst had been the continuing of life. The continuing, Christ had been the, was the continuing of life. There had never been a day when Paul had not lived in his presence, and in the frightening moments, Christ had been there to tell him not to be afraid. Christ was also the end of life, for it was towards his eternal presence that life was always led. Christ was the inspiration of life. He was the dynamic of life. To to Paul, Christ had given the task of life, for it was he who made him an apostle and sent him out as an evangelist to the Gentiles. To him, Christ had been given the strength for life, for it was Christ's all-sufficient grace that was made perfect in Paul's weakness. For him, Christ was the reward of life, for to Paul, the only worthwhile reward was closer fellowship with his Lord. If Christ were to be taken out of life, for Paul, there would be nothing left. So if Christ wanted him in prison... He was content with that providence. If Christ wanted him to remain on earth, though he preferred heaven, he was content with that. If Christ wanted him to be poured out as a drink offering for the faith of others, he was content in his will. If Christ wanted him to have a time of abundance, his contentment was still in Christ. If Christ wanted him to experience a time of need, his contentment was in his fellowship with Christ and and he rested in what Christ supplied in the moment. Again, he was content in all of these things because life was no longer, his life was no longer his, but it belonged to Christ. Christ is the Lord, and we are the slaves. That's what he said in verse 1. He identifies himself, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, really slaves, doulos, of Christ Jesus. Slaves of Christ. A slave, as you have heard before, is different than a servant. A servant serves someone else. There's still a a degree, a certain measure of autonomy that a servant has. A slave has none of that. A slave is completely owned by his master. Completely owned by his master. He has no will of his own. He has, in one sense, no life of his own. He's completely under the direction of his Lord and of his master. Christ had complete ownership of his life. He has complete ownership of our life who know him. We have been, in the words of 1 Corinthians 6, bought with a price. In fact, it's even more than this in reality. He uses this term, doulos, one other time in Philippians. And he actually uses it in reference to Christ. You'll remember this. He says in chapter 2, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. A slave. Being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even though Christ, the eternal Son in the flesh, lived his life as a slave on earth. He did not seek his own will. He sought totally the will of the Father. 
He did not seek his own self-protection or pleasure. He sought only to be pleased in doing the will of the Father. He only wanted to please him. Christ never grumbled, and he was never discontent with the Father's will. He never had an unease of conscience, a sense of hurriedness, a sense of discontent in his heart. He was completely given over to the will of the Father and in that way modeled a slave. He was completely committed to the will of another. Even though that will included him being a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Even that will would ultimately include the most shameful, painful, and ignoble death of crucifixion, giving himself up as an atonement for the sin of his people. He lived his life, Christ did, in the form of a slave, one totally under the will of another, and that for our salvation. And so for Paul and for us as Christians, we simply model that, and yet us in a far different sense, because we weren't those who had a dignity of deity that was ours by nature that we set aside the use of. We are, in fact, those who were slaves to sin. And this one who is so glorious, the eternal son, purchased us that we could be his slave. That we could be his slave. That he could own us. So Paul grasped this. He grasped this. That's why he said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted lost for the sake of Christ. And that they're nothing that compares to the value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So Paul's contentment came from the fact that he understood and he lived within the reality that his life was not his own. Even more that his life was owned and directed by the one who is perfectly sovereign, perfectly wise, and perfect in his love for him. Part of our discontentment comes when we think of our life as our own. We think of our life as our own. We think of ourselves as independent somehow and God's there just with us. That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that we are completely owned by Christ. We've been purchased. He is the Lord. We are the slaves. Yes, we are children. Yes, we are sons and daughters. But we are also slaves. We are completely owned by another. Discontent comes when we seek to assert our own will, put forth our own desires above the Lord's, And it's really a form of pride and arrogance as well as foolishness. It was mentioned earlier in the quote by Watson. When we do that, it's almost as if we're saying we really know what is best for our lives. We really know it with a greater wisdom what is best for our lives. As if we were more perfect in wisdom, more perfect in love, and would do a better job at governing our lives than the Lord of all glory. The one to whom one day every knee will bow in adoration and worship. When we're discontent, when we grumble and complain about circumstances, when we live with a a sense of this constant conflict of our soul because things aren't the way that we want them, that's denying the Lord's sovereignty and ownership of our lives. It's not to say there's not a real pain, of course, in life. That's the glory of heaven, that there is no more pain, there is no more tears. But when we've come to that place when we can gladly live under his lordship and under his sovereignty, then we've come to a place in which we can begin to understand contentment. Contentment. 
Contentment comes when we stop trying to assert our own will and desires and make them superior to Christ's providence and rule in our lives. When we pursue our own, when we pursue Christ's way rather than our own way, when we rest in His goodness, His kind and loving lordship over our lives. Discontent is when we put more effort and energy into pursuing our own will than simply obeying His. Contentment comes in when we can say like Paul, with Paul, for me to live as Christ. And then we can say, as he did in chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because we live as one who's been yielded to the loving lordship of Christ. And so our service to Christ and our ownership by Christ is not simply our ownership by one who is greater than us by virtue of his divine nature and sovereignty and power. It's rather that though those things are true of him, that we are in service and we are owned by one who loves us with a perfect love, who cares for us with a care that's greater than our own care for ourselves, who has a wisdom that is inscrutable, who has a purpose and attention that is always holy and without defect, that is always right, even though it might run contrary and in contradiction to all of the things that we think would be good for us and that we desire. And until we can yield our will to the Lordship of Christ and relinquish our own sense of autonomy, our own sense of self-will and desire to His will and desires for our life, We'll live in discontent, but when we can do that, then we can know that great joy of contentment that Paul demonstrates for us here and that Christ demonstrated in his own life. Let me make just one very quick point on this because I think it's important. We read earlier in chapter 4, again, Paul said that his, as he's encouraging the Philippians to, to walk in the same contentment, the same reality of Rest in God's sovereign purposes. He says this in verse 19. He says, My God will supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now there's a lot there, but let me just bring up this one point because it's an astounding statement. And it's important to understand in light of contentment. And and it comes in this one key word that he uses. Do you pick it out in verse 19? It's this word. It's needs. It's needs. That's a key word in light of our discussion. It's a word that we use all the time and very lightly, different degrees of importance and seriousness, but very often we, what we express as needs are really expectations and wants. God does not promise to meet every earthly want to fulfill every earthly desire. He does promise us to meet every real need and that according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How do we determine a need? Well, here's one baseline for understanding our need. We read it earlier, 1 Timothy 6, 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Everything above clothes on your back and food in your belly and protection from the cold and the heat is abundance. Everything else. Everything else. Now, God delights to give us abundance. He richly surprises us with all things to enjoy. But we have to recognize that those are extras. Those are extras. Discontent comes when we have unmet wants and desires. We never, never, never as a Christian have an unmet need. Never. That would deny his promise here. That would say what he said wasn't true. 
Never do you have in your life, no matter how many unfulfilled wants you may have and I may have, we never have anything in our life that is an unmet need. God has promised to supply all of that. All of that. And when we can grasp that, then we can rest contented. And in fact, we can be thankful for the extra things that he gives us. And we all of us in this room have so many extras. So many extras. That doesn't mean that we don't desire better things. It doesn't mean there's not a rightness and all of that to a better paycheck and raise and so forth. It is to say our contentment can't rest in those things. And never can we doubt that God has failed in supplying us what we need to serve him. Well, I'm going to mention that we don't have time to do this last one. Fourthly, contentment comes then. There's more to say, of course. Uh, Contentment comes from a spiritually disciplined life. Uh, We don't have time to get there, but I'll just point you back to Philippians chapter 3. Paul said this. He said, this one thing I do. This one thing I do. And this passage here uses the imagery of running a race. And it's very much like the writers of Hebrews. He says, let us lay aside every sin and encumbrance. Everything that hinders our obedience to God. Our faithful living in this world. Paul says, this one thing I do. This means he got rid of everything extraneous. He used discernment that he calls the Philippians to in verses 9 and 11 of Philippians. And he says that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. That means Paul didn't live just by what was okay or acceptable. He lived by what was spiritually best and most encouraged and facilitated his pursuit of faithfulness to Christ. Wow, there is so much there. But the idea here is simply this. His life was well-ordered toward the goal of serving and honoring and being with Christ. And so he disciplined his mind. He disciplined his life. And because of that, he knew a contentment that few know. Well, we need to stop. Um, Contentment. Contentment, let me just summarize, is this. is really summarized in what Paul said in verse 21. It's to say that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's to gladly yield ourselves to the lordship of Christ, looking not at things that are temporal, but things that are eternal. It's ordering our life towards that goal with an eternal perspective in spiritual discipline. It's having a mind that's set not on ourselves, but considering others as more important than ourselves and a heart of service. That's where Christian contentment comes from. And that's when we can say that we can speak not from want, but we've learned to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves where the Lord of heaven and earth has providentially brought us in this life. And we can serve him faithfully there. Let me pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. And we thank you for the promises on which we rest. And Father, I know that I speak probably in agreement with many here that that know how hard that is. It's, It's one thing to be clear on the principles and living them out is so difficult at times. Our flesh pulls us and we have deep inner struggles as we seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh, as we seek to yield and submit our desires to yours. But we want to. And we know that that's right. And we know that that's good. Help us to live with an eternal mindset 
Help us to have affections that consider others as more important than ourselves. Help us to live gladly under your lordship, knowing that our lives are not our own, but they belong to you. Help us to live well-ordered and spiritually disciplined lives, looking towards the end, looking towards our reward. Help us in all of these things that we might be not grumblers and complainers as the world, but as Paul said earlier in the epistles, those who stand out as children of God, who stand out as beacons of light and of truth to a fallen world. Help us in this. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your death, your resurrection, the promise of your return that we remember now in this table. May we worship you and you enable us to do that by your spirit together. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.